Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hello, I'm Danny Wallace, and this is Phil Hilton. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Earwolf Presents, featuring an episode of our show, Monatomy. Each week, Earwolf Presents brings you a new episode from the Earwolf universe of podcasts, and today you'll hear ours. So, um, well, have you ever noticed that men don't tend to talk about their bodies, the bits they love, or the bits they really don't? This is the, the lie that men don't care about their beer guts or their hairy shoulders or their weird knees. And we expose the fact that men not only care, they care deeply. And they talk about it at some length. And it's very funny and sometimes very moving. It is. And each week on Anatomy, we sit a man down and force him to reveal all, not literally, in what we hope is an honest and open and, like Phil says, usually pretty funny conversation. And we also talk to women who've been having these conversations for far longer than we have. Past guests available for you to download now include comic and movie star Jack Whitehall, activist and actor Jamila Jamil, the world-famous Stephen Fry, Europe's strongest man Luke Stoltman, and many, many others. But we thought we'd bring you this episode this week. It is the double Emmy award-winning actor Tony Hale from Veep and Arrested Development, and the movies, of course. And he talks anxiety and having a quirky dad bod and why he'll never take his shirt off willingly, Phil. Yeah, he, he's someone who sits by the pool in something loose and flowing. Uh, it's lovely to hear someone so famous talk so openly about his body insecurities. And he also, at one point, sacrifices his dignity for comedy. And you have to listen in to discover what happens there. You certainly do. So please do consider subscribing to Monatomy with loads of great guests coming up. Here you go. Thank you so much on behalf of Phil and myself for joining us today on Monatomy. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's very good to see you again, Danny. It's been a long time. It has been a long time, and it's lovely to see you. But for anyone who can't see you right now... Oh, that's right. They can't see us, but we can see each other. (laughs) And who may be unfamiliar with the world of Tony Hale, uh, and that is becoming, you know, uh, less and less likely as the years go by. Could you just describe yourself physically as you sit here today. <laughs> Describe myself physically. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't shaved. Um, I am wearing a sweatshirt to cover my dad bod. Um, I have not showered yet. Um, and yes, it's uh, 2 p.m. my time. I'm wearing jeans 
And is there any other what other description should I give? Well, it's it's really up to you. How do you sort of see yourself? How would you describe yourself if you had to describe to an artist? This is how I want you to draw me. What would you What would you say? Oh, I see. Well, I haven't freely taken my shirt off since I was five, so I don't really know. <laughs> That's going to be tricky. Um, I how would I freely describe myself? I'd. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if you're picturing, uh, picture Chris Hemsworth and then think of the exact opposite. <laughs> I, I would never have described you as someone with a dad bod, though. I, I've always thought of you as you're lithe, you're malleable. I think you move with great fluidity, like, mm-hmm. um, like a sort of jazz dancer, but for comedy. Yeah, I do like to move. <laughs> I don't like to move with my shirt off. I like to move. <laughs> Um, I, I'd say, um, I, I think you're right. I, 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 physicality is a big part. I I like to dance. I like to, my comedy is very physical and stuff like that. But in terms of kind of, um, uh, eye candy, I don't think I'm that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't don't think that's true at all. I mean, you talk about not taking your shirt off, but you know, if, if, if you had to, um, I, I've never seen you naked. Um, oh, I, I wa- come on, Danny. Let's get honest. <laughs> I, I wonder, are you hairier than I would imagine, or are you perfectly smooth? I would say I would. <laughs> I love that perfectly smooth is the ideal. Um, I would say I'm uh, I'm halfway hairy. I would say, um, yeah, I've got hair on my chest. Um, I have a little hair on my belly. <laughs> <laughs> um it is i i've i've accepted the fact i'm never gonna have brad pitt's stomach mm-hmm. um i think i was made to have love handles and um just a little pouch in front as much as i work out um and then uh i think i have a normal sized flat chest <laughs> um however i do think i have some good arms Mm-hmm. I've always had pretty good arms. But yeah, I think in terms of hair, I think it's uh in the mid-range. It's not perfectly smooth whatsoever. If I let me say this, if I had to do a scene in something where I had to take my shirt off, I would probably have my parts of my back waxed. <laughs> Is that right? Yes. What do you do in, um, I picture, I haven't been to America for, for yonks, but I picture it full of swimming pools and beaches. That's the impression you give the rest of the world. What do you do in a swimming pool beach scenario with your body situation? Well, I would, um, well, as I'm, you know, I'm 51 now, so I, I have the good excuse of wearing one of those sun shirts and then mm-hmm. you can, you can blame, well, I don't want to get sunburnt, right? I, I'm, I'm worried about skin cancer. But the foundation of it is no one needs to see this. <laughs> <laughs> because obviously, you know, you, you're from Florida. And when we think of Florida, we think of the Floridians and we think of the Sunshine mm-hmm. State. And we think of um, glistening, uh, mm-hmm. tanned, toned uh, sort of bodies. What was it like uh, growing up uh, there when, you know, I, I would not have fit in there at all. Yeah. Much like every character I play, I'm out the outsider. <laughs> like if you if you think of all that and then you just see a blaringly pale, skinny kid who does not do athletics and has asthma, that was me. 
Um, but I, I did enjoy, I mean, I, there, I, I can't say there were times when I didn't feel confident about myself. I think there were times I went through like stages of like really working out and really feeling a good about it. But man, that is exhausting. That is exhausting. And I, that's a full-time job. I think it's a full-time job to, in my head, look the way I ideally think I want to look my whole life. That is that involves so much time and so much dedication for me. I think some people it comes naturally. For me, that's like that would involve a lot of dedication, and I just don't think I was up for the task. I don't think that I, that wasn't necessarily a priority for me. What what is the what is the way in your head that you that you thought maybe growing up was there an ideal was there a sort of a, a role model was there someone you mm. saw in a film where you went yeah that should be me. I in a film. Uh... For some reason, I there was I don't know if there was a specific actor, but there was just that um, I wasn't involved in sports, but it seems like a lot of guys had that just flat stomach, just like it just there was no everything just came. There was a big chest, and then everything came down a V, and it was no love handles. We call them love handles over here. I don't know if you guys call them love handles. Oh, we definitely do. Yes. Works for okay. us. There was no love handles. Completely flat tummy. And I didn't even care about the legs or, but there was just that like really sculpted stomach. And I think I always saw that and I was like, that is, that's the ideal. That's the ideal. And I, I, I can honestly say, I don't think I've ever, ever had that. Even as a kid, I'd never, I just never had that kind of perfect sculpting. Didn't you come from a, a military background? It must've been a, a, a real impetus to, um, to sort of do burpees and run around with a backpack on all the time. Are we going to get into trauma? Let's get into <laughs> if you like. It's early. It's early. <laughs> um, no, well, my dad, you know, my dad taught at West Point. He went to Vietnam. He actually went to West Point as well. So he was, you know, very much that personality. But at the same time, my grandfather was an opera singer. And he also worked as like an MC for the Earl Carroll Follies back in New York. And so my dad had a real appreciation for the arts. He really never what you would think of like a military fa father forcing that on me. There was one time I remember when <laughs> I was on the swim team and I was in the middle of a swim meet and everybody's swimming, you know, in the lanes. And he says, I just stopped in the middle of the meet and my dad looked and I look up and my dad looked at me and he goes, what are you doing? And he just said, <laughs> he just said that I went, what? I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> And I just, I just stopped. And he was like, "All right, well, I guess sports isn't for him." So <laughs> I can, I can really only imagine you swimming in a funny way. But I think, I think that's, I think oh, that's. Was. A, You're correct. <laughs> well, I think it's a testament to your acting. But when you were, um, when you were starting out as an actor, before people um, were as familiar as they are now with what you can do, mm -hmm. what roles did like the the way you look? Because that's the that's the I suppose that's the way people first you know get you in for an audition or something. What roles did your look get you at first? Well, I was I was when I first went to New York. I remember going to this. I mean, it took me a long. I started doing commercials, and I and I I was described as a, a David Schwimmer type, but not as good looking. <laughs> and uh, and then I remember I was trying to find an agent for film and TV, and it took me like six years to find an agent for to send me out for TV and film because they just saw me as a commercial actor. And this one, 
this one agent said, if you're not blonde and built like a brick house, we can't use you. And I was like, well, that's, <laughs> that's not what I'm bringing to the table. Um, and so I think from early on, thankfully, I, I kind of embraced my quirk. I embraced kind of who I was um, and leaned into that. I think I felt comfortable in that. I felt comfortable with comedy. Um, there's a, <laughs> I just have this image of, um, since we're talking about the the body, there was the scene in Arrest, uh, Arrested Development when they brought us back for, I think it was the fourth season or the fifth season. And there's a scene where I am um, making a doll of my mother because she's not around. And so I begin to make this doll of her and I'm sewing her clothes. And I think I might've even suggested and said, hey, Mitch, why don't I, let's turn this really psycho. What if I'm naked at the sewing machine? <laughs> and then he goes, oh, that's funny. And then I remember thinking, what the hell did I just <laughs> say? Here I have so much insecurity of my entire life of my physicality. And then I just, rec then I just suggested to be naked on a television show. And so there I am hunched over at the sewing machine, just looking like a beached whale you know, like sewing. And I was like, well, it can't get any worse than that. I mean, <laughs> whatever. That must have, that's, that's a brave thing to do, but you're doing it for the art. <laughs> I know. It was a pretty long shot. If it was close up, I would have had, I would have known, but it was a pretty long shot. But still though, it's, oof, it's not pretty. And when, when you were learning the, the craft of acting, quite a long process, did you have to do all that pretending to be a tree in the wind physicality training and horse riding and everything? <laughs> You say that so elegantly. I love it. Um, uh, I think in, in New York, when I was studying at the school, we did we did movement classes and we would go and um, you would just kind of be in this room with your leotard and and your T-shirt and they would have you do all these like crazy movements. And I'm sure a tree was in there somewhere, but it was just to kind of like let go of your inhibitions and but half the half for a for a guy who does comedy half of it you're just like what the living hell <laughs> am i doing right now on that note i mean you mentioned you know you were doing a lot of commercial stuff uh, early on and mm -hmm. i suppose um you'd have been given some strange uh, notes from directors asking you to use your physicality in a certain way mm -hmm. um you were doing a volkswagen commercial i think mm -hmm. and you got some Quite unusual, some quite unusual notes. Uh, I, I I remember. Oh yeah, I this the, the, I don't remember where the director was from, but he goes. Um, he he didn't speak very good English, and he it was me and it was actually a, the Volkswagen commercial was we were putting a mattress on top of the car, me and these other guys, and the guy all he did was he just goes. He goes, I don't know, I don't know. I'm thinking monkey, monkey, monkey. <laughs> and we were like, monkey? What are you talking about, man? And and then the guys and I were just like, I don't know, let's just put the mattress on top of the car. And he was and he was like, Yeah, 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 monkey, monkey, monkey. And so <laughs> we just put the mattress on the car and then got in the car and he was like, Okay, let's go. Got it, got it, got it. I was like, I don't know where you got monkey from putting the mattress on top of the car, but all right, I'll go with it. <laughs> well, you nailed it. Next, on Monatomy. I remember uh, just having that wave of panic attack coming on. And this is right before they were about to start opening the curtains.
You were saying a moment ago about where someone, your agent it was, um, mm. if you're not built like a brick, whatever, and you're not blonde. Mm. Um, I, I suppose a lot of your job, there, there's a lot of brutality there, isn't there? There's a lot of people talking as if you're not in the room, Yeah, uh, maybe talking about you. H- have you had mm. any experiences like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's you, I mean, you know, like you kind of, when you're on set, or, or especially when you're doing voiceovers, you're in this little booth and then there's this piece of glass and then they you do your thing and then they turn off all sound in your headphones and then you just see them talking about you. And just like, it's like judgment corner. They're just, they're just talking about you. And then when you're on set and you do the scene and far off is what's called video village where they stand around video and you just see their nonverbal of going, I don't know, like, yeah, <laughs> all right. I mean, do you want to try that? And you just, there's, you, you go through it so many times that you, you learn. And I never, I never really agreed with someone being like, yeah, you just kind of get a thick skin. Cause I think sometimes a thick skin can get, that's not the healthiest form. Cause you don't necessarily feel stuff, but you do adapt to this way of rejection and just people just talking about you that feels very normal, you know? And, and the, the, I think the biggest challenge is to not create a narrative in your head of what you think they're saying. Because in actuality, A, they may not be talking about you. It could be nothing. But in my head, I'm like, I'm fired. That was wrong. You know, and it's like you learn to not kind of create your own narrative of what they're saying. And did you ever find yourself in the room with people who are ludicrously good looking, men who are classically good looking? And and you must. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you just, um, I admire it. I'm like, you're a, you have got a amazing head of hair, dude. And like, just like, or like, you're just, I just, or I'll make jokes. I mean, I used to make, I don't know. I don't know if I make jokes, but like being kind of like, yeah, we go in the same castings or I don't know, just kind of, because, <laughs> but the, I will say that doesn't necessarily bother me when I'm working with somebody. I mean, that's just life. Like someone's, but what bothers me was is way, way back when you'd go on auditions and the people in the room who's auditioning for the same part are like incredibly good looking or not even in your range. And you're like, why am I here? What's, I mean, if they're, if they're looking for that, like, why am I here? But then I think, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I said before I'm 51 and I think you kind of with age, you kind of learn to embrace the uniqueness. I mean, we all hear it over and over. It's like, you don't, as a kid, you kind of want to be a cookie cutter. You kind of want to be what everybody else is and look like everybody else. But I think the older you get, there's a little more embracing that uniqueness and what I bring to the table, you mm. know. Which is, you know, which is what ends up with you getting the part. But what mm. about those times where you walk into a room, maybe in the early days, and everybody looks like you? Yeah, yeah. That was... That was crazy. That was that was really interesting because when I first got to New York and I'd walk in, I would see like 50 quirky sidekicks that look and act exactly like me in a room <laughs> going up for an audition. And I'd be like, why? Where's Where is my uniqueness? Because there's clearly so many other people that look and act exactly like me. And I always like when I when I talk to kind of students or uh, people that are wanting to get in the business, I always tell them, I say, hey, I know this sounds maybe not what you want to hear, but I always tell people to invest in their community before they invest in their career if they move to a new place. Because when you have experiences like that where you walk into that room and all of a sudden you just don't even know your uniqueness or you you don't even know who you are for a second, you have to have that community to fall back on 
to support you and to see your uniqueness, to see who you are, because that's what's going to give you longevity in the business. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, because because so many times I'd walk away from that being like, why am I doing this? Do I want to keep going? What the hell? And I'd have people around here be like, hey, let's go get a drink. Let's talk about it. And people who really see you the way you think other people in the business are not seeing you. It feels tough in a way to be a kind of a Clooney or a Brad Pitt because the aging process must be creeping up on you, don't you think? It is. And there's the quicker you can embrace that and not fight it, <laughs> I think the the better, because I think just, I would say um, there's so, like, again, this sounds whatever, but th- there's so many stories out there. There's so many stories that our people are telling or comedy and stuff. They don't only need 20, 30 year olds or 40 or even 40. Year, like every, every age is represented in a story. It might not be necessarily the story sometimes that maybe you want to be a part of story that your age, you're a little too old or even maybe you're too young. And that just happens. But there's so many other stories where your age is represented, you know, and just kind of trying to embrace that a little more. I think fighting it is is what we have done for decades and decades and decades and decades. And I just don't think that is worth it. It ends well. And it's tough. It's tough to embrace it many times. The whole thing seems tough as well. Just the idea of rejection that, that can happen sometimes just because, you know, you're not you know, physically right for that role, but they haven't Mm -hmm. given you the chance to show what you would do differently with it. Have there been those moments um, where you found it very tough because you sort of haven't been given that chance? Um, I think initially, yeah, because I mean, especially when I was doing all those commercials in New York, and it it literally took me like six or seven years to get people to Mm. see me beyond that. That was very, very frustrating. Um, But so much of it is... (laughs) completely out of my control like it is completely out of my control and the and sometimes i mean i'm i've had a situation where i reminded somebody of someone they used to date who they hated (laughs) and that's why i didn't get the role i found out behind the scenes i mean i that is that is like literally completely there's nothing i could have done why did you do that (laughs) exactly exactly choice Um, yeah, it was a choice. It was a choice. Um, so just stuff like that, you have to, and again, this is something I have to really still work on is like the, the amount of kind of beating up myself I used to do of like, oh, I should have done this. I should have done this. Man, there are just layers and layers and layers of stuff that's out of my control. I remember this one. I remember I was going out for this one film and this director, I did the audition and the director stood up and started clapping and say, okay, when I book you, and all I heard was when I book you, okay? Mm-hmm. So then I called my wife and I said, hey, I think we might be going to Vancouver for this gig. We, my baby, my, my daughter was like a baby then. I was like, we need to find daycare, all this kind of stuff. Turns out I didn't get the role. Um, I, Stephen Merchant actually got the role, who's really, really funny. Mm-hmm. And But the fact is like he just – words are just thrown out in Hollywood that mean nothing. And they they think they say it to make you feel better, but it's the worst thing you can do. And I think the older I get, it's like until I'm on set, I just – I don't even rely on anything because just words are just thrown out, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it just doesn't mean anything sometimes. So I guess I'm saying like – there is so much out of my control. People say crap they shouldn't say just to make you feel good. All this kind of stuff. Until I'm on set, I just, it is a, I have no idea. I have no idea. 
We talked about, you know, the roles that you play, and you mentioned, you know, quirky sidekick, but you've broken away from all that, and you're doing, you know, the the leading man stuff, which is which is fantastic. And, you know, over the years, you've played a lot of kind of awkward characters. I wondered, you know, were you awkward as uh, as a teen? Um, how did mm-hmm. you feel about how you fit in with the other kids at that at that time? Yeah, I mean, and we we even did a show called Awkward Situations for yes, Men. Yes, we did, yes. Mr. Yes. Danny Walls. Yeah. Um, but I, which is like the perfect name for both of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I was I was an awkward teen. I was, my dad was, yes, my dad was in the military. And when he retired, we moved to Tallahassee, Florida in the seventh grade. And my brother was very into sports. Down south, sports is pretty much a religion. Like it is... It is, it is just the thing to do. I was not into sports. My parents didn't really know what to do with me. And they found this theater called Young Actors Theater that they signed me up for. And it was really a, just a huge blessing because it was I kind of found my people. Um, and I, But also, even, even with that theater, I was just a... Um, I was an anxious kid. I was a, I was the kid that would become whatever you wanted me to become to get you to like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a lot of like neediness. And at the time, that was not the funnest to walk through. But it is, I think it's cool looking back about how I, you know, have, you take anxiety, for, for instance. I struggle with anxiety. And then because of that, I'm able to play anxious characters really, really well. You know, I'm able to hopefully find more of an authentic um, point of view into anxiety when I perform. And it's kind of interesting how stuff you've gone through, even though it was shitty to go through, you kind of use it, you know, in your work. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of cool. Is there an element when you, you play anxious people that it, it eases that in, in reality? It's like a, mm. a vent for it. I think that's a great question because the only great question of this podcast, I might add. Um, <laughs> we'll try harder from here on in. <laughs> no. Um, I um, that's That is interesting because I remember when I – when I booked Arrested Development uh, coming from New York, and that was my very first job, my very first big job outside of commercials, I was incredibly overwhelmed. I was very nervous. I had never been on a studio lot. I had never had like free food given to me. I mean, I was just like, this is so overwhelming. And I was playing a character who was all those things. I was playing a character who was and, and Buster was constantly on a state of defense. Like he had his hands back and his chin. Like every, and I remember Mitch Herbert's telling me that all Buster wanted in life was safety. Mm-hmm. And so he was, and that's all I wanted when I moved mm-hmm. there. So to your point, it was like everything I was feeling, I was able to kind of use for Buster very naturally. You know, I was just always nervous. And so if I, I don't, if I was supposed to play a confident character, then I don't think I could have done it well because I was just not in a very confident place. Did you discover any ways of um, working through the anxiety in the rest of your life? That it's very physically inhibiting, and for anyone who's even tasted anxiety, yeah. it's awful, isn't it? Oh, it is awful, and it's um, um. Well, I mean, kind of like a part of my story, and I, I apologize if I'm repetitive about this because I talk about this a lot. But when I after I so when I booked Arrested, that was that's all I ever wanted was a sitcom. That's all I ever wanted. And then I got it and it didn't satisfy me the way I thought it was going to satisfy me. And it really scared me. And it kind of woke me up to like, even though I love my time in New York, I was always looking to that big thing. I was like, that big thing's coming, that big thing's coming. And then I got the big thing and it didn't satisfy me. And it's that whole thing. If you're not practicing contentment where you are, you're not going to be content when you get what you want. And I just had never been very 
present or con- practicing contentment where I was. And I was also here, I get my big thing and I was still looking to the next thing. And that's where this kind of Archibald came. This, the show I did Archibald's next big thing, because this chicken is always looking to his next thing and he's missing where he is. And after Arrested Development, I said, I got to wake up to this because I had my child in 2006 after it was canceled. And I was like, I've got to begin to be present or I'm just going to be an anxious mess. I'm still kind of an anxious mess, but I've <laughs> I had to start to work on it. And so I started getting into um, uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy where I, it, it's, I, the way I describe it is I began to be more of an observer of my thoughts and my feelings rather than identify with every single one of them. So like they describe it as like, you know, all these thoughts and feelings that like a crazy thought comes in your head rather than being like, oh, my God, I can't believe that thought came in my head. It's like cars on a highway. You're just like, oh, yeah, there's that thought. There's that feeling. It doesn't mean I'm crazy. It doesn't mean I'm going to fall apart. And so I started to just kind of be more of an observer of these things. And that I think like even saying like, all right, well, this seems like a day where, wow, there's a lot of thoughts and feelings today. There's a lot of kind of crazy thoughts. And and that really kind of set me apart from all that stuff. Um, and so like this therapist would talk to me about doing these exercises of like when I feel a lot of anxiety, rather than try to cut it off of me, be like, all right, well, there's that. <laughs> oh, here's a prime example. I was doing a theater show um, a year and a half ago in San Francisco called Wakey Wakey. And I was, it was a practically a one man show at the very end, somebody comes in, but I was, and I had so much anxiety about it. And every night I would, right before I came on stage, I would just feel that anxiety come up and I'd be like, and I would start talking to it. I'd be like, yep. Okay. I knew you'd, I knew you'd show up and I appreciate you being here because I know you're just trying to help me. <laughs> I know you should be safe. Well, I'm just, you're just going to sit there for a second and then I'm going to go, I'm going to go on stage. And and it was just like kind of just setting it apart from me um, and things like that. Like, But another thing he would do is he would say, hey, when that happens, you activate your five senses. So what are you hearing? What are you smelling? What are you seeing? What are you tasting? Um, what are you touching? And so when I get this anxiety, it's like, okay, here's I'm feeling the table. I'm smelling the room. And it's all about kind of grounding you in the space. Because what happens with my anxiety is I start going to these what ifs. I'm like, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? And it's like, okay, right now is where I'm at. And I'm having a really great conversation with Phil and Danny. That's where I am right now. I'm going to touch this table. So things like that, like all those kind of tools that I would use. <laughs> Sorry, this turned no, into a kind really, of no, really, not at all. But you become <laughs> almost like your own narrator. Um, if if I'm if I'm sort of seeing. Oh that yeah, right, yeah. You do, and I and after and at first it's you do it a lot, and then as time goes on, like this weekend something happened that I got kind of anxious about, and I was like, you know what, that's a lot of feelings, and rather than live in the what if of if it doesn't go away, I'm just gonna say acknowledge it and be like, wow, that's a lot of feelings, and then just keep walking, you know, and then the next day it kind of passes. Whereas it used to be like, oh shit, what are all these feelings? What's gonna happen? Where's this gonna go? And then the snowball just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So, I mean, those are quite, you know, those are um, not, pedestrian is the wrong word, suburban examples, but in a really sort of um, um, high stress environment where you know you can't really control anything other than Mm. what you're going to do, you're about to walk out through the curtains of a a live uh, chat show. What's Mm. going through your head and and how how do you control it? 
Um, well, that's interesting you say that. Okay, that's another good question. <laughs> Finally. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I, w- I remember years ago, I was about to do Conan. And, um, and I felt this was right, probably this was early on, maybe right after when I started working with this therapist. And um, I remember uh, just having that wave of panic attack coming on. And this is right before they were about to start open the curtains. And I thought, okay, I have two options here. <laughs> I, I can either book, I can run, because that's all you want to do is just run. Or I can do something that can kind of, you know, break it up a little bit and separate it. And I remember there was these two guys that were holding the curtain. There's always two guys. And then they open the curtain and you walk out. And I just started asking these guys questions. And I was like, oh, well, how long have you been doing this? Where are you from? Oh, my gosh, it must be so crazy. I guess you guys see everything going. And I got my mind out of my narrative into their narrative. And then all of a sudden, that you could tell these guys were like, okay, man, I got <laughs> I gotta open this curtain. So like, just chill yeah. out. But they were answering the question. It was like, oh, yeah, I've been doing this. And all of a sudden the curtain's open. I was like, okay, walk. And so it's just like, because if I had stayed in my narrative, you know, I don't know what would have happened. But I just got into their narratives. And then it helped me walk out. And But then at the same time, when I'm on, and you've experienced this, when you're on talk shows, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but you're sitting on the couch and they're, they're talking to you. And all of a sudden you kind of have these feelings of you're like leaving your body and you're watching yourself. Yeah. And you can just like, all you want to do is be like, Tony, stop talking. <laughs> like, it's almost like your mouth is moving, but you're like, this is live TV. And yeah. I just, that I can't stop talking. Um, and that's when I just had, I like, I'll feel the couch around me and be like, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to get back in my body and, you know, continue the conversation. But it's interesting, you needed to just kind of, you couldn't deal with the pre-performance. You had to just get rid of that time so that the spotlight was on you so that you could then go into I suppose a mode of improv a mode of improv and there's a there is this there is this um who there's this female preacher named Joyce Myers who I used to listen to a lot and I'll never forget one thing she said she was talking about anxiety and this was years ago this was before I even did arrested and I was doing commercials and I was experiencing a lot of anxiety and she said, you know what? Many times we think that we have to be in a place of peace or confidence or assurance to, in order to do something. You know, it's like really gear yourself up and then do it, which, you know, is the case for some people. But many times you're going to feel terrified and you're going to feel ner- you're going to feel unstable. And she says, you know, what? in those moments, just do it afraid. Just do it afraid. And I have never forgotten that. Like whatever feeling, it do- whatever feeling comes your way, that doesn't mean you don't do it. You just do it afraid. You just keep walking. And I think that's for me of like, you know, I just keep moving. Just keep moving. Still to come in this chat on Monatomy. To really get the detail of a good dad bod, quirky dad bod, <laughs> you got to <laughs> you gotta find an artiste. mention your faith um a preacher does does, um, having a faith help you with that sort of nip and tuck pressure that you must experience um in the film and tv world yeah i mean i think my faith is very important to me and it's honestly it's um i think it's just uh it it well there's a lot of things about it but i think mainly it just reminds we're spinning on a planet Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
And this, this life and the things that I give attention to and anxiety to, it's not like they're not wonderful things, but the fact is 50 years ago, people won an Oscar and an Emmy and, and, and I, they're dead. <laughs> I mean, not to sound macabre, but like the amount, <laughs> the amount of kind of uh, importance I sometimes give it. And again, not that they're not beautiful things, but in the anxiety, it's like, there's a there's a universe there's a much bigger there's a loving god who has a much bigger picture of what's going on than what than than what i'm looking through right now and also just you know people in terms of my faith people can kind of look at faith as a crutch you know and if i'm honest i always respond i always say like yeah give me two crutches because life is fucking hard sometimes <laughs> and knowing that a, a God that I believe in is walking with me through that and giving me strength and, and assurance and peace in moments that are really difficult. And that is, that's the way I, I choose to live life. And I'm very, very incredibly grateful for that. It, it sort of boils down to as well what you just said, um, you know, that kind of that thing of don't sweat the small stuff, which, um, you know, is also the opposite of you <laughs> in a lot of ways. So as many crutches as you can have to uh, to be able to to do that, the better I think. Don't you? Yeah, and it's. I think there's a. Um, I, I would say I think and it's not that. And it's not that independence is wrong, but I feel like our world really praises independence. But what we don't give enough attention to is I think healthy dependence, mm-hmm. where we really need each other. And I would even add God and like, I need God. I, I, I don't, we're not meant to do this life by ourselves. We need each other. And so there's a vulnerability, I think, that comes out of that. And hopefully that vulnerability, and as we need each other, I think it brings more authenticity. Hopefully in my performances, that's more authenticity. So it's like everything just, I think, gets a little more real and authentic. That, that play you mentioned, um, I haven't seen it, but reading about it, it was about mortality itself, wasn't it? That was, um, you, you well, play yeah, a man he, at the end of his yeah. life. Yeah, it was a guy who was at the end of his life, and he was kind of, kind of thinking about his life. Uh, at the, and at the initially, you didn't really know that he was at the end of his life, but it's um, a guy named Will Eno uh, wrote it, and it was just this real. Um, <laughs> it's funny. It's been two years, and I've already forgotten a lot about it. But, <laughs> but <Sorry>. it was. <laughs> it's just it kind of just talked a lot about gratefulness. Tell and, us everything uh, about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just, I think the, I feel like I'm sounding all kind of uh, cheesy now, but it's like, it's kind of giving power to the simplicity of life rather than, I think we live in, everything is about finding extremes and highs. And for me, the older I get, it's my goal, I would think, hopefully there are days when I'm not thinking about this, but hopefully is kind of to find the extraordinary and the ordinary. You know, and because I've being in this business, everything is extraordinary. It's like, fine, this is get this, and this is going to be extraordinary. But you don't get a lot of attention to just the extraordinary of the ordinary. And mm-hmm. the play talked a lot about that. And I hope that I grow more and more into that. Talking about that as well, you talk about the highs and the lows of the, the sort of the industry, but also of performances, because you can do very heightened performances, of course. But mm-hmm. what I've always loved about you, and I think so many people do, is that attention to detail and mm. the minutiae and making the ordinary little things very mm. extraordinary. Um, mm. So when you are developing a character and you know what your body can do, what do you look out for in a character? Are there little 
um, physical ticks, or are there things mm. you steal from people or things you notice when you develop that character that mm. you know that you and your body can pull off? Um, <laughs> me and my body. I love that. I'm going to start. <laughs> let me just go around. It's both of you. Well, you're a team. Me and my, me, me and my body are coming. <laughs> um, I um, yeah. I that makes me think of a story that. Um, well, I guess when I get a character. Um, when I think back to that space, when I would walk into that room and I would see all those guys who look and act exactly like me, that, that's pretty daunting. And I think the more I realized of when you get into a character, for instance, and the more that I just play an idea of a character, like I remember years ago, I did this, I did this movie and I was, the character was kind of a douchebag and he was manipulative. And I remember going to this acting coach and this, and I was like, I just hate people like this. So it's really tough to play this character because I just hate people like this. And she said to me, she says, Tony, you have to realize that those characteristics are inside of you. And it's true. If I'm true, because I have unfortunately been a bit of a douchebag at times in my life and I have been manipulative, you know, and it's like the more that I separate myself from these characteristics of these characters, the less the less I'm being true to myself and the less truthful I'm going to play the character. So with, with that character, I really try to find those characteristics in myself because you think about that room of 50 guys, if I'm coming into an audition room and I'm finding those characteristics of the character in myself, I might not get the job, but no one will have ever seen, no one will have seen that audition the way I did it, because that came out of me. And if I was playing an idea of the character, like however I thought, you know, a teacher would act or however I thought it, whatever, you know what? There's so many other guys who would probably do that better than me playing the idea. But if I bring it out of myself, of what I already deal with, like for instance, you take this character Curtin in Mr. Rose Benedict Society. Yeah, he's considered the evil guy, but he's, you know, he's is very manipulative, he's very sarcastic, um, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, I have, I have those traits in me. <laughs> and I guess what I'm saying, so bringing it on myself, that's, that I feel like is going to be the most truthful version of it for me, you know. Where are you on um, sort of really traditional macho role models for men? Because so many of the characters you play sort of undercut that and mm -hmm. play with that. Um, how, what's your take on it? I think it's, I mean, I think it's always changing. I think, um, <laughs> you know, we've come from a season politically in, in the States that, uh, where there was a lot of um, pride and machismo and um, arrogance. And I think that was such a jarring example of leadership without saying names um, that I think there's been like more, I, and this has been happening, I think there's been a lot more value given to vulnerability in men and men being honest about their stuff. Like even you guys having this podcast coming on and talking about our insecurities, you know, with, our bodies and stuff like that, like how encouraging that is to people, you know, mm -hmm. and it's amazing. It's taken so long because everybody resonates with it. Everybody resonates with vulnerability and everybody's thankful for it, but it takes people making the step to really put themselves out there and be honest about it. So I feel like well, it, it's changing a lot. Well, let's do that. So, so right now, I mean, you mentioned right <laughs> at the start, you know, um, dad bod and not taking your top off. What right now are you vulnerable about or what are your hang-ups uh, that, that you carry with you today? Today, I would say, um, I would say the insecurity of 
I mean, I've always had insecurity about my physicality. I've always had insecurity about, I mean, I've begun working out more because I, I think I have goals that I would rather not have as much insecurity about it just to have a little more freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have a lot of, not a lot, but I think, I, you know, I just turned 51 and I think there's a newness to getting older, even though I want to embrace it. It's, you know, you're, my body doesn't react the way it used to be or, um, it's just, I think it's just kind of an acceptance of, wow, I'm not in my 30s anymore. I'm not in my 40s. And I remember turning 40 and thinking, wow, I'm 40, you know? And it's like, I mean, when I was when I was in my teens and 20s, I remember thinking about people in their 50s and being like, God, why do you go on? <laughs> <laughs> like, what else, what is there to do, you yeah. know? And so it's so wild when you sit back and you're like, you're like, all right, well, I'm there, you know, and really accepting that and that does bring out some insecurities you know i think phil uh that's something that you've always always kind of talked about your your eternal battle against uh, the demon of time but i think that you know it is that funny thing of when you when you become the age that you remember thinking about mm-hmm. I, I think certainly i think oh yeah but i'm a, i'm sort of like i'm a young that because i'm now here but but obviously everyone was in the same position back then Oh, always. And, you know, it's wild, and I'm sure you guys can relate. It's when you meet somebody who's your age or close to it, and you have these moments of, wow, I'm, am I their age? <laughs> I'm their age? <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's, you know, it's, and it's, and then you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, I am their age, you know? I think so it's those, always yeah, those chilling moments where you catch yourself trying to pass as someone around a decade younger than you really are by referring to a band or wearing a particular fashion <laughs> label. <laughs> and you, it's the, just that glimpse in the mirror of uh, this tragic, deluded figure. <laughs> um, none of this means anything no. to you, Tony, I would imagine. No, I think you're a very attractive man. God. Very attractive. <laughs> we all do. Uh, well, Tony, the, the other thing that we have to... Um, that we have to tell you is that we've spoken to the people at um, Tallahassee Town Hall and the mayor or whatever they have there. I haven't really looked into that, <laughs> that that much. The person in charge has said, do you know what we're going to do? We are going to erect a giant Tony Hale statue. It's going to be three, 400 meters into the air made of um, the most wonderful ivory. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you're allowed to do that anymore. It'll be some material. Uh, marble. We'll say marble. And, or clay. Um, we can just yeah, clay. clay. And we'd like Tony to have a say in what the sculptor concentrates <laughs> on. Um, you mentioned your wonderful arms. You, you've always been happy yeah, with your I arms. I've got good arms. I've got so, arms. So perhaps the pose, first of all, would be, you know, sun's out, gun's out. Um, <laughs> what would the rest of the statue <laughs> what would the rest of the statue look like? And what would you ask the sculptor to accentuate? Um I can honestly say that if if this was happening, which it will not happen, it, it will. If, it this, will. if this is happening, I would want a very realistic picture of what I look like. Like uh, my postures, I'm working on it. It's, pre- it's not statuesque, um, but uh, I think I'd have a little bit of a belly. Um, I think I'd have a, a significant nose, um, and. I definitely want to be smiling or, but it's like, do they go character or do they go me? I guess mm. they go me because character, I would probably be like in a state of shell shock if they wanted to go Buster or Gary from Veep. Um, 
but I would definitely want to just have a smile, but I, I would want them to do it pretty. I'm not going to model for it. They're going to have to <laughs> piece something together, Yeah. but I would want it to be a, a, a good representation. It sounds quite cheap. <laughs> I don't know. Some, I think it's probably cheaper to do it like a Brad Pitt body. Cause like anybody maybe can do that. But like yeah. to really get the detail of a good dad bod, quirky dad bod, <laughs> you gotta you gotta find an artiste. Yeah, I think we found the podcast title there. Um, <laughs> quirky, quirky dad bod, find an artiste. Um, Tony, um, thank you so much for spending some time with us and allowing us to explore uh, your body and your life and uh, your career. Um, it's been <laughs> I've learned a lot, Phil. Have you just about yeah, the, just imagine walking into a room, Phil? For some reason, they've gone, Phil Hilton, we need to invite you to this thing. There are some other candidates. And when you walk in, they all look exactly like you. How, how would that feel? It's it's a living nightmare, which I'm, I'm experiencing now just thinking about it. I'm, I'm actually tense imagining that. <laughs> Every single one with a little black polar neck and the sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tony, thank you so much for joining us on Manetta. I loved it. Thank you for having me. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.